It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 17 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. Episode 17 already. Already. Time does fly by, doesn't it? It, it sure does. It sure does. How you, how you been, John? I know you're juggling a lot of things. You're working on TV projects. You're working on radio projects. you got your podcast projects. In 2023, the beginning of 2023, I know you have a lot going on. Anything you can talk about right now? Uh, we're gearing up. Uh, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast is really taking a new direction. We have had guests for the first time almost on a weekly basis including uh, Eric Bischoff, 30 years to the week that he was appointed the executive TV producer for WCW. And that, for him, was really entertaining because he had not heard that interview in 30 years. I sent him a link when he agreed to do the show. He didn't listen to it. He said he'd rather be surprised. And he had a fabulous time reliving that interview, especially in a life-changing week that that was for him. He was also out in California at the time when I taped the interview with him with Jason Hervey selling a uh, kid's show to Fox. So it was a big week for him. And then he gets the uh, executive uh, producer job at WCW and he talks about it. And what made that interview fascinating to me was uh, he knew he was going to get that appointment, but he didn't spill the beans on the show. He was saying what an executive producer would do. You know, talking about uh, maybe changing venues. But even though he knew he was getting it, he didn't give me the scoop. Ooh. And we talked about that. We, I said, Eric, I was trying to get the scoop from you. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, I'm good at what I do. And he really had fun with it. That, that that's so interesting, and this is what I love about going back. I love that you're talking to guys that you talked to already and get their perspective now, thirty years later, on that show and what they were thinking. And and Eric is so good at that. Yeah, so that was a perfect uh, guess for that. And of course, uh, uh, the week before we had the 30th anniversary of Andre the Giant tribute and played that episode. 
And we were able to bring on uh, Jackie Bernard McCauley, who was married to Frenchie Bernard at the time, who was a referee. And Jackie and Frenchie lived on Andre's farm in, in LRB, North Carolina. So to have her come on in a very cognizant, great memory and tell us stories about Andre the Giant that no one ever knew because she lived on the farm with him and how they met the relationship and even as far as her and her sister going over to France to get the body and the difficulties that uh, that presented trying to get the body back to the States, especially that the family of Andre wanted him buried and Andre's wishes were to be cremated. So it was like all of this inside stuff that was really fascinating. And I also brought on Chris Owens, who is probably the foremost Andre the Giant historian and archive collector anywhere in the world. So he shared his stories as well. So that was really good. And I just taped a show with Mark Madden, which will be on our next podcast. Uh, that'll be out probably when people hear this one. And it's 30 years to the week that Bill Watts was fired from WCW because of the homophobic and racist remarks he did in an interview with Wade Keller, the pro wrestling torch. And Madden was the guy that transcribed that interview that Watts did with Wade Keller and faxed it to Henry Aaron and the Turner executives. And that got Watts fired immediately. Wow. In today's day and age, he would have been strung up, canceled, released. And uh, the interview that Watts did was with uh, Wade Keller, and that was in the Pro Wrestling Torch in 1991. For Mark, a year and a half later, to transcribe that or copy that interview and send it off. And I was like, why? You know, what prompted it? And Mark was like, well, I did a parody uh, article for the Pro Wrestling Torch where I put Dusty Rhodes up against Bill Watts, and they were fighting about whose son was going to be pushed more. And Watts said some disparaging things on a 900 number about Madden. And uh, Madden says, you know what? I'm going to get you back now. I'm going to get you fired to himself. And he faxed over this article to Henry Aaron where it said that, you know, Watts said he had the right to discriminate. If he didn't want to sell fried chicken to a black man, he didn't have to if he had a restaurant. And some of the other homophobic things he said, using incredible language that would never be tolerated today. So uh, Madden said, if I was instrumental in getting him fired, I'm glad I did. And so that's going to be out in the next podcast that we do. And then we have, you know, the 30th anniversary, unfortunately, of Kerry Von Erich's suicide. Kevin Von Erich has agreed to come on. Uh, and then we have uh, Conan's first appearance on Pro Wrestling Spotlight in the first week of March. And he gets introduced to Terry Funk on the telephone. So Conan, I'm reaching out to him to come on to listen to that show from 30 years ago in real time. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. The numbers are the numbers have increased dramatically for it. And it's kind of like. I'm doing a 2023 version of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight and copying what I did 30 years ago, with the exception that I have the audio tape that we could play and review. But that's kind of the format now. We have the news capsule from 30 years ago with Donnie Liable. Then we go into the meat of the show, whatever that big topic was, with hopefully a guest that was on 30 years ago, the ones that are still with us, and have them review those tapes as we listen with them. So it's kind of remarkable of what's happened with the show over the last 30 days, but people are digging it. I'm so happy to hear that. I know there was a shakeup on the show, and you weren't happy about that. Uh, yeah, Bob Smith uh, was such a wonderful guy, uh, dear guy, good man. It was just a, uh, it was just a situation of uh, I wasn't happy with the fact that the show was really designed to be about 
the clips from 30 years ago, the show from 30 years ago. And it was a hard decision. And I'm very happy that Bob has started his own podcast now called The Outdated Wrestling Hour, which I've listened to. Uh, this is he's on his third episode and and he gave me a nice plug on his new show today. And I'm going to give him a nice plug. Well, it really talks about old school. <laughs> it's outdated wrestling is what he talks about. The guys like Frank Hickey from years ago and uh, Baron Mikel Cicluna. And and so, yeah, so, Bob, I think, you know, sometimes you make changes and it, it may hurt and it may sting a little bit. But if the ultimate thing is that the individuals get better in their work and Bob has a passion for this old stuff. So now he's covering the old stuff in a way that probably not a lot of people can. And you could hear the passion in his voice that he's got his own show now. It's distributed everywhere. And it's a niche show like Pro Wrestling Spotlight is a niche show. Like this show is a niche show. It's all niche stuff. It's like a limited number of people who really dig what you're talking about. And they're few and far between as everybody gets older. So anyway, I'm happy with uh, what Bob is doing. But, you know, the change had to be made. And, and just because I wasn't I wasn't feeling it anymore with what I vision what the show could be and now we're both doing okay we're both kind of feeling pretty good about what we're doing and sometimes like a shake-up like this is what i like to see right now is good for both you guys you know not that you guys aren't going to be successful on your own but together you wanted to do something different and we've always talked about back and forth with us about getting more guests for you and getting guests coming and it's a it's actually harder it's harder to do it's a harder yeah. show to do that you're putting on right now than you've done in the past but it, it's more you know like you said it's more like the original show so you're gonna have to work harder at it to get these people on the air but the quality like eric bischoff you know, that is such an amazing episode because he's into it just as much as you are. And you're going over this thing he hasn't heard in 30 years. And he's giving you his true feelings about stuff and telling you how he was and what was going on at the time. And I think that's what the show is really all about. What the backstory was. Yes. Why did this happen? Why did you say what you did? Why didn't you give me the scoop? I mean, that was all kind of the conversation. And even with Mark, I let Mark go. Uh, he said some things on the podcast, which was like, holy smokes. I mean, I wanted to find out the reasoning. I wanted to find out the history behind how he eventually, why he sent that fax. Mark is a polarizing guy. He's You love him or you hate him or whatever. He basically was very adamant about he did what he did for a reason, and Watts was gone, justifiably so, based on the comment, and Watts was a bully. At that time, and before he got there, if you talk to people, he was always like that. It wasn't yeah. he, was, he didn't change when he got there. He was always like that, but he ran his own company. And when you're running your own company and people depend on you for a paycheck, you can say whatever you want and no one's going to no one's going to fight you on it. But when you have to go to another company and these people aren't working for you anymore or you're working for somebody else, you got to play by their rules. Yeah, you do. And uh, and TBS was really fed up with the uh, the boys club that would, was running WCW Turner had spent millions of dollars when they bought it from Jim Crockett promotions. And they were getting sick of the boys club. They were getting sick of it being run like a frat house or what the comments were. So they wanted to get professional. And they, that's why they hired an executive TV producer to run that segment of the business, someone for live events. They were really giving it one last shot with Bischoff to come in and turn it around. And get rid of Watts then. And then, lo and behold, before you know it, they're moving their taping location. Hulk Hogan is signing with the organization. A few years later, 
NWO, things explode, 83 weeks. The show, Nitro, was number one against WWF's Raw for 83 consecutive weeks. This was the start of it on the Eric Bischoff podcast. And then following right up the next week with Mark Madden, because what Eric was talking about, and then Mark follows up with this is Watts's, you know, this is it. He's fired now because he said these disparaging things, these racist and homophobic things. It was a fascinating two week, you know, it's like one week with Eric, next week with Mark. It was fascinating to hear their perspective of what was going on in their heads on the decisions they made. And it was life changing for Eric and for Mark. It was redemption in a way over a parody column that Watts attacked. Wow. And you can hear all of these uh, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, but especially at Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. You can hear the original episodes uncut with all the commercials and stuff. And why I want to bring up the Patreon right now is, first of all, thank you to all our Patreons. It help us keep the lights on and it helps us do these podcasts and do them for free. We bring them to you for free every week. And and this week, um, what I wanted to jump into is we're going to be covering February 26, 1973. And this is the second show that John brought his little 8mm to, but now he knows how to use it a little better. So now he's going to go back and take some of these videos or take some of these films, as they were called in the day, and put them up on the Patreon of some of the matches we'll be talking about today. Besides some of the films that we'll be putting on the Patreon, John, what else is happening on the Patreon? As always, a lot of content, 193 Pro Wrestling Spotlight shows from the archives are up there now, some from college, uh, tons of photo sets uh, from the 70s, uh, 8mm films, as you reference, uh, vintage audio of the WWWF from the 70s, some lost TV shows that have been found and digitized, and they're up there now. And we have our monthly Zoom get-togethers with our patrons of any level that they're in, vintage magazines that go out to uh, some of the higher-tier patrons, and the opportunity to guest appearance on the show uh, if you're in a producer or an executive producer level. If you're an executive producer, you get to come on the show, the podcast, six times a year for producers, four times a year. And it just so happened uh, one of our patrons in the producer level, Nate Maxson, was the guy that was scheduled to come on with Eric uh, when Eric was on. So I allowed him to ask Eric a question or two as well. And then it was kind of ironic that our executive producer, one of our executive producers, Anthony Pyrus, is also in the top tier of ad-free shows with Conrad Thompson. And so part of that uh, deal, uh, Conrad distributes Eric's podcast, 83 Weeks. Part of the perks in the ad-free top guy tiers, they call it, is that you get a certain number of phone calls from different wrestler uh, wrestling personalities that do podcasts. And Anthony, when he found out Eric was coming on, he goes, hey, listen, Eric owes me a phone call. So would you mention it Mention it on the show? He goes, he knows me. Maybe you'll get a kick out of it. I say, you know what? I will. So what happened was Eric is wrapping up his segment. Nate asked a question from, uh, you know, from our Patreon invite. And then I was like, Eric, we also have one email question for you from somebody that you may know. It's Anthony Pyrus. Oh, yeah, I know. Anthony's a great guy. I said, Eric, all he had to say was, Eric, call me. And Eric cracked up, started laughing. And then I get a text from Anthony the next day. He called me. <laughs> and it was all fun and, and, and good fun and a lot of, you know, it was it was good. And uh, so anyway, I mean, that's what goes on on Patreon and, and our community is growing. Uh, we did pick up uh, some new members over the last month and 
uh, people stay with it. They don't leave it once they're in. And once they get these podcasts early, like this one, it'll go up before it goes up to the general public by at least five days. Each and every week, they get the original show, they get the podcast early, and they get all the other perks and all the other content only at Patreon.com. $5 a month gets you all of those archive tapes, the early access to the video podcast, the audio podcast. And for $10, you get all the other vintage audio clips and video clips. And for $25, you get to see these 8mm films and you get more perks. And then you go up to a producer and executive producer uh, level. And that allows you to appear on the show, get vintage wrestling magazines. There's something there for anyone with any budget, really. And you know what's so, so great about this? You just never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to be available for you. You never know what's going to go up. So join the family. Join the fun. Patreon.com slash John and Rizzi. Let's get into tonight's show. Well, let's start off the date. Monday night, February 26, 1973. A very unusual night for the WWF, where they ran two major house shows at the same time. Besides Madison Square Garden, they also ran their second show at the Boston Garden at the same time. So I just want to go over the Boston Garden show before we get into the Madison Madison Square Garden show, Boston Garden attendance, 13,700. That's about 2,000 shy of a sellout. Notable matches, we had Jack Briscoe defeating uh, Bobby Shea. We had Bruno San Martino defeating Moondog Lonnie May. And Chief J. Strongbow, Gorilla Monsoon, and Sonny King defeated Chuck O'Connor, Mr. Fuji, and Toro Tanaka in the best out of uh, three out of five fall match. Here's my question for you, John. Uh, you, You send some of your best talent. You got Strongbow, you got San Martino, you got Monsoon soon and then you send your tag team champions to Boston knowing that you're going to be doing a house show in New York what what were they thinking and and how is that a, is that a normal thing is this this seems like a very unusual occasion hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It wasn't the norm to run a a major house show the same night as you're running Madison Square Garden was almost unheard of at that time. You know, the notable matches, as you mentioned, I mean, Jack Briscoe, out of territory guy, Bobby Shane. Those are from Eddie Graham's Florida territory. Bobby Shane tragically lost his life not too uh, long after that. Matter of fact, I believe in, in, in that year he might have died. 
But you had Bruno San Martino, of course. I mean, Bruno beating Moondog Maine, who headlined the Garden with Pedro Morales just a month before. And then Strongbow Monsoon, Sonny King against Tanaka Fuji, Chuck O'Connor. It was a loaded show for Boston. But when you look at the Garden, the Garden was a sellout. And you had a loaded show at the Garden as well. I mean, you had Vern Gagne on the Garden show, which, of course, we'll talk into uh, talk about. You had Neil Moscaris's second appearance in New York, which was huge. And you had uh, the main event, which was the Crazy King Curtis against Pedro Morales. And you had the Funks. I mean, it was uh, they were both loaded shows. So I don't know why they did it. They were successful on both in both cities with a sellout at the Garden and just shy of a shellout in Boston. But yeah, it's a, an interesting question to bring up uh, 50 years later. Since you're running two shows at the same time, it's very hard with your talent. So they had to ask, you know, Mula and the NWA and the AWA to help them out at the Garden. Yeah, I don't know if that's the case, though, Tim. I mean, um, I don't know if it, I'd call it helping out. I mean, you know, wrestlers go whatever they wherever they're booked, they're going to go. Whatever whoever made that decision. And it had to be Vince Sr., of course. Uh, there had to be a method to the madness and a reason that he did this. But uh, all I could say, he lined his pockets pretty well from both cities that night. No, I'm not disagreeing with you on that, John. But you're sending your major guys up to Boston when you have a New York show, which is very unusual. And now you had to bring in these other talents like Mascaris. Well, you didn't have to because they were promote they were promoting this card in the last on the last month. I mean, they announced the lineup at the Garden in January for the February show. Okay, so they knew they were. And so do this. when people when people have the opportunity, oh oh, look at this, you know, Mascaris is coming back. I think that's the catalyst right there. Moscaris's second appearance and how popular he was in that territory off of the L.A. TV that the fans in the New York market were able to see week after week. And then you have, uh, you know, Morales is going to draw his fans. So there you go. Between those two, you have a healthy pre-sale. And then the others is just really kind of what you call the cherry on top, you know, because not a lot of fans knew Vern Gagne unless you were a hardcore wrestling fan. I don't think Vern Vern's appearance sold any tickets per se. Uh, and then when you have the Funks as well, the Funks are known by the hot hardcore fans. They didn't mean anything to the casual fan in New York. The casual fan in New York were most concerned about Morales and then, of course, Moscaris for that show because the makeup of the crowd, you have to say, was 70% Hispanic at the time. Do you remember any buildup on TV for the show? Yeah, I remember an angle that Curtis did attacking Morales and it was blood. I mean, it was like, you know, during an interview. So, yeah, that would that drew the heat that was going to make him crazy. You know, once again, the the Moscaris thing, Morales thing, the crowd. And what I, I remember because of the filming of the eight millimeter camera that I brought, it was electric in the building. It was almost riot like when Morales was taking on Curtis. That was a very tense atmosphere because Curtis attacked Morales, and we'll talk more about it when we review the match, but it was uh, it was kind of volatile, and I was a little concerned just because of how the crowd was surging in that main event and how things were being thrown into the ring and, you know, the cops were on edge because, once again, if Morales gets beat, there's a riot. It was an interesting makeup, and that's the way it was when Morales was champion. Well, and also somebody had the new 8mm camera there, so he didn't want to get it ruined. I didn't want to drop it. I didn't want someone bumping into me to cause it. It was it was difficult to navigate it because people are jumping up and down out of their seats, and I'm just trying to get the best you know, I'm not first row. I'm still seventh, eighth, ninth row, whatever it was. 
and to zoom in and try to capture the action in the ring without people's heads getting in the way and and all of that, the rushing of the stage. And you know how you are in a crowd, let's say at a, at a rage or something. It's like people are going crazy. You're being pushed around. And I'm, you know, I'm still a kid. I'm still 15, 16 years old at the time. I'm, you know, so it was uh, it was exciting. I remember it vividly. And I think that's based on the fact that I could watch it over and over again at any time because it's on film. But that Morales-King Curtis match was probably one of the most exciting matches I have captured on film because of the violence that was in it and because of uh, the bumps that were taken by both Morales and Curtis. So it was really exciting. And I look forward for patrons to see that when we put it up uh, for them to, to check out. It's an amazing match for five minutes. All right, well, let's get into it. Madison Square Garden, Monday night, February 26, 1973. Bell time, 8.30 p.m., 22,098 in attendance. That is a sellout. I think that is uh, that is back-to-back sellouts, uh, January 15, 73, and now in February. Uh, we're going to start the show um, with the ladies. Number one match is the ladies. Susan Green and Lily Thomas defeated Peggy Patterson and Paula Kay in a best-out-of-two-falls match, 18 minutes, 12 seconds. Yeah, it was uh, the girls, and I was excited because Susan Green was somebody that uh, had a little bit of a crush on, a girl from Texas wore the cowboy hat in the ring, and and then she meet with Lily Thomas against uh, Peggy Patterson and Paula Kay. It was a good brawl, two out of three fall match. It really got the crowd up and excited. Um, You know, Susan Green started wrestling at the age of 15. I mean, she was in it for a while. Uh, Like all the other girls, if you were trained by someone else, you needed to be retrained by Moolah, and that's what happened with Susan. Something I'd like to check out, I haven't seen it yet, there was an autobiographical movie on Susan's life that was released last year. That's called Out of the Ring, so I recommend people checking it out if you're a Susan Green fan. Lily Thomas, her uh, partner, the first African-American female ever to wrestle at Madison Square Garden, and this was her only appearance at the Garden. Peggy Patterson on the heel side, also known as The Beast, she debuted in 1970, retired in 1992. She had uh, the first of her four appearances at Madison Square Garden in this match. And ironically, every time she appeared at the Garden, they were all tag team matches. She was trained by both Mildred Burke and Moolah, and those were two of the biggest money makers in the wrestling business um, when it came to women. And this goes to show that it didn't matter who you were trained by, you had to be trained by Moolah to get booked. Mula had the monopoly. Totally had the monopoly, and this is how it was run. And and she was the first one to get women's wrestling into Madison Square Garden, so she booked who she wanted to be there. Yeah, and that, she did that, you know, across the territories. I mean, she was the Vince McMahon Jr. of the women wrestlers. Even though she had all her problems with Vince Jr. later on, she was the same, and she was kind of a tyrant. And so, you know, there's a lot of stories about Mueller out there, especially after she passed. And, you know, people weren't uh, that much afraid to talk about her. She was always nice when I met her. She had that sweet Southern accent. She did my Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show several times at my 91 convention. Met her in 74 when I won the Freddie Blassie Fan Club, Fan Club of the Year Award in Atlanta. I remember riding in an elevator with her in 74 in Atlanta at the convention. And I was like... I was blown away that I'm, you know, riding an elevator with Mueller and there was just, and she was just so sweet and nice. But uh, unless you worked for her, you really didn't know her. And finally, Paula Kay, Paula Kay Collier was her real name. Her nickname, the Oklahoma Cowgirl. She made her debut in 1969, retired in 1984, and she served in the United States Air Force before wrestling, but also once again trained by Mula. 
and known in the ring, a very aggressive style, using weapons and even foreign objects uh, to beat her opponent. So, yeah, there was a good four four person women's tag. I remember capturing it on film. A lot of rolling around with the referee. A lot of, uh, you know, it was it was kind of cool to see it. And uh, I really had uh, t- took a liking to Susan Green because I thought she was a tall, statuesque blonde with the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots, and she rang my bell back then, my friend. <laughs> Well, what was the name of the female wrestler? You recently told me about this that you saw recently and you either gave her photos or film of her match. Who was that? Joyce Grable. Okay, Joyce Grable. All right. And I, I love that you do that, that you you, you find uh, these older wrestlers and you, you say, hey, I've got some pictures I want to give you of your matches or I have some memorabilia of you if you don't already have it. Yeah, well, she's uh, she was, you know, just sweet person and got an award at the Cauliflower Alley reunion. That's right. I uh, got the opportunity to talk to her, and uh, and she was quite the looker back in the day, too. Match number two, Tony Gurria defeated Mike Conrad in 15 minutes, five seconds. Simple match, uh, typical Gurria match, uh, the drop kicks, his arm drags, and Conrad was, uh, was an okay heel. Conrad was also known as the Brooklyn Kid. He made his debut in 1970, retired in 1974. And his first Madison Square Garden appearance was June 15th, 1970, where he was defeated by Mario Milano. And there's an interesting backstory when it comes to uh, Mario Milano. There was a situation uh, when uh, Koloff, Ivan Koloff, was about to, um, he had just beat Bruno. It was before the match that Koloff was supposed to drop the strap to Pedro Morales. Just in case there would have been a little swerve or if Koloff would have held them up or didn't want to do the job for Pedro. In a match on TV, they had Milano pinning Koloff on TV just so they could have it in case he wouldn't do the job for Morales. And they could say that, you know, Milano was the world champion. So they covered their ass. And I don't know if Koloff made any overtures towards that, but they kind of wanted to make sure that he would do the job to Morales. So they they filmed this. That's an interesting backstory that not too many people know about. But he did the right thing. But ironically, Koloff is still not in the WWE Hall of Fame. And that is a travesty because he should be in there. And who knows what went on behind the scenes and what heat there could have been with him and the McMahons or Vince Jr. Uh, And then, of course, he went over to the IWA in 1975, and that wasn't taken very lightly by the McMahons, too. So anyway, deserves to be there. There's an awful lot of people in the WWE Hall of Fame that really shouldn't be in there. Koloff needs to be in there. But anyway, we digress because we were talking about Mike Conrad. 100%. 100%. Match number three, Mike Graham defeated Joe Turco in five minutes, 42 seconds. Yeah, Mike, a good hand and uh, certainly part of the wrestling uh, legacy with his, uh, he's the son of Eddie, of course, and Turco, the intercontinental nobleman. He was always one of the better enhancement guys and, of course, beloved by me because he was my tag team partner in that infamous match I had against The Rock's grandfather, Peter Maivia, and Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, But Graham, son of Eddie, uh, I don't understand why they didn't book the Grahams versus the Funks, because that would be father and son against father or son, and all four of them were in the building that night. Yeah! That would have made more more sense. Yeah, that would have been a great match. Uh, And speaking of Funks, Terry uh, match number four, Terry Funk defeated Chuck Richards, who was subbing for Eddie Graham. He won the match in 10 minutes, 50 55 seconds, but I just go back to what you said one second. The, the Grands versus the Funks, father and son and father and son. Wow. 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 
Right. Wow. That would have been really great to capture on 8mm film, wouldn't it? Hmm. Who do we know who had a camera so, then? You did. That guy. I did. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, that was uh, crazy why that didn't happen. And I remember this vividly. I was, you know, obviously uh, a fan of the Funks, and this is, uh, I'd seen them before, but this was the opportunity to now film them. And I was so excited about that. So I did film uh, a lot, you know, not all of the match. It was 10 minutes, 55 seconds. But I captured Terry working the crowd on film, which you could see. This was the infancy of the way he would be able to work the crowd and throw sucker punches and taunt them a little bit. And he was such a young guy at the time. So when I watch the film now and I see his mannerisms, the way he circled the ring and, and you know, was boxing a little bit, he just kind of played with Chuck Richards for the 10 minutes and 55 seconds. I, I do believe that Terry is certainly one of the greatest all-around wrestlers of that time. Everyone has their opinions. Was he better than Flair, better than Steamboat, better than Bruno? You know, you can lump them all in because they were all great in their different ways. But Terry Funk, I mean, what he accomplished in his career, not just then, but eventually winning the NWA World Championship and then the ECW legacy and everything that he did, the Japan matches, his feuds. You have to say, I would have to say that he and, and Mick Foley are the best brawlers in the history of pro wrestling. And Terry's got to take an edge a little bit. With Terry Funk... The thing that I like, I find most interesting is we're talking about the 70s, okay? 1973, he's wrestling, he's coming up. He does his stuff. He joins the WWF in the 80s. It was uh, Terry Funk, Dory Funk, and there was another yeah, Funk. Hoss. Didn't Hoss. he call him Hoss uh, Funk? There was another Funk. I forget his name. Uh, that uh, yeah. yeah, there was another Funk. Yeah, yeah. There was it, it, wasn't, it was Jesse Barr who played him. I, I'm not really yeah, sure. Yeah, right, right, who, right, who he was. right. But... You see him then, you're like, okay, this guy's done. This is it. This is the end of it. You know, they go to the WWF and they get fat and they're just not the wrestlers they used to be. Then he comes back and he goes to the NWA and then he goes to the ECW and he forms another career. If it was baseball, I would have said he's on steroids because he just changed so much and he became super entertaining again which is amazing to do once you've been doing it for a while and you're exhausted and your body's beat up and you do everything you can to reinvent yourself like that without changing your personality without changing yeah. he was always Terry Funk he didn't have to change he did sure he did some other things here and there but for the main thing for the biggest parts of his career he was always Terry Funk and the later right. part until, of his career until McMahon had him do change saw Charlie or whoever yeah. made that decision yeah. which was you know everyone knew it was Terry Funk and you were limiting him by having you know have that silly gimmick uh, change saw Charlie but, you know, still a brawler, still uh, was listening to a podcast Mick Foley was on earlier today talking about that. Yeah, I mean, not too many people in the history of the wrestling business like Terry Funk. And personally, I love him. I love the man. He always uh, treated me well. I had some of my favorite interviews with him. First time I ever interviewed him right before he wrestled Ric Flair at uh, the Great American Bash in 89. I was petrified because I turned that mic on, asked a question, and he went nose to nose with me, just kind of intimidating and yelling and calling Flair names. And Gary Hart was there looking over, you know, uh, my shoulder on the other side. And I was like, boy, they're working me or something, you know, and it was like and he just let him go. But that was one of my all time favorite interviews. And then I'd bring him on the show. John Azuzu, how are you? You know, and. And then being able to do business with him and book him, 
for not only AAA and then doing that show in Chicago where he turned on Pero Aguayo. Everything that I could say about Terry Funk is nothing but positive. Bringing him to my conventions uh, to sign and and just somebody that I hold up in such revere. I revere this man. Uh, so anyway, back then in 1973, 50 years ago, I started to get that like such a special individual when I was filming that on 8mm. And to pull it, you know, full circle for Terry Funk, Chuck Richards is a grandfather of ECW legend Chris Candido. Here's another thing, a little behind the scenes thing. Uh, I did a little work with ECW. I, I drove some guys to the arena. I met Terry at John's convention and I knew him from down there. He was always very nice to me. I don't think he ever remembered my name. Doesn't really matter. But Terry would be like some guys after the show would hold court in a bar. I can't tell you how many nights I'd come into the hotel and it'd be late and Terry Funk would be holding court in the lobby and he would be just telling stories and wrestlers would be sitting around kind of like little kids looking at Santa Claus, just sitting back with their eyes open, sitting on the ground, looking up like, oh my God, he's talking. And he was just spewing all kinds of stuff, like kind of like a stand-up act, but stories and this and that and, and trips to Japan or working with this some somebody and all the wrestlers would go, oh, what about this? And he'd come out and he'd talk, well, that guy's, a, and he, he just, not a very good accent. He was just so personable like that, and I'm so happy he got to live that in the later part of his career. The, these young wrestlers who were, were going to be superstars in their life were not there yet, but they were looking up to this guy, and he was very gracious to them, and he spent time with them, and he taught them. It was pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, love of the business that he had and love to tell stories. And uh, my first convention, final story about Terry here, he was at my first convention and uh, he did hold court in the lobby of that Royce Hotel, as it was called at the time. And and he kept sending fans into the bar, go buy, go buy me a beer. You know, and of course, everybody would buy him a beer if he wanted. And, and he kept talking. They were just kind of, here's another beer, Terry, keep going. And he did, but he was always gracious to everybody and respectful but if you were at ringside don't go near him he chased fans he chased photographers don't go near terry funk when he's at work he take a swing at a fan and miss a fan by a quarter of an inch he was that good at what he did so yeah what a what a guy i could talk about him for hours uh, we'll have to do a show on him one of these days match number five awa world champion Gagne defeated eddie graham subbing for ray stevens 14 minutes 35 seconds here's a couple things Gagne retained his awa world heavyweight championship and as a side note this was eddie graham's last appearance at madison square garden yeah it was um Eddie, of course, uh, you know, obviously doing business with Vince and maybe one of the reasons he came in, but it was his last appearance and um, it was a good match. I got some of it on film, you know, both Graham and Ganya, of course, just master's degrees at the wrestling business and working a match and two of the biggest and brightest and most creative minds in the business. So, yeah, it was interesting to see. And I just I was just so happy I was able to capture Ganya with that AWA championship and. I always loved that belt he wore, and I was able to capture that on film. Here's how rare this match is. You're talking about the best booking minds, business minds in the business, but also two of the top men 
in their territories at this time. So it wasn't like these are guys are the they're, they're hazmat. These are the two main guys from Florida and from Minnesota that are coming here to wrestle at the Garden. That's how much the Garden meant to some of these guys. And, and maybe maybe it was a favor thing. Maybe it was a favor thing for Vince that he'd be sending over some of his boys. But two of the main guys from different territories coming up and wrestling at the Garden together is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it could be that McMahon was just kind of like we have some business to talk about, maybe exchange of talent, who's going to be in your territory that we'll send over, who you get to send to us. So maybe it's kind of like, and we'll give you a payday, you know, so your trans will be taken care of and you'll get a payday working at the garden. So, I mean, that to me as an insider probably is the reason a lot of these things took place with these particular individuals, talent exchange, but you get a payday for coming in. For the meeting because they're not selling tickets and where they would sell out in minnesota or florida they're not yeah. selling out in new york not like and the next have, match and you couldn't have meetings tim there were no zoom back then there was no zooms there wasn't <laughs> this is strange okay I, this is the first i hear about this no zooms in 73 all right we'll go with that no. we'll go with that no. uh match no. number six wwf world champion pedro morales Pin King Curtis in five minutes, 37 seconds. John, is this one of those matches what could have went longer, but the crowd made it stop early? I would say that that, had a, that was probably an, a correct assumption. It was immediately brawling as soon as they came in to the ring. Morales ran into, like he ran into the ring, slid underneath the ropes, and they just went at it with the brawl. And the wizard, of course, jumps out of the ring because you're not allowed to stay at ringside if you're a heel manager back then. But it was just nonstop brawling and fighting. And there was one point in the match where I'll, I'll never forget it. Morales is throwing Curtis into the ropes, giving the tremendous backdrop. Curtis takes a camera from one of the photographers at ringside. So it's hitting Morales over the head with it. And he lifts his hands up to give him another shot on the head with the camera. And Morales hits him in the belly. And it's great on eight millimeter because they capture his little belly roll. It was almost like, you know, the juggling of the belly of King Curtis drops the camera. Morales hits him. He climbs up to the top rope, gives him the flying body press. Fast count by the referee. One, two, three. It's all over. And then they brawl for a second. Curtis takes a bump over the top, runs back to the dressing room, and Morales holds up the Puerto Rican flags, and uh, the crowd goes wild. Short and sweet. Happy it was short and sweet because each roll of film I had only held three and a half minutes. And with this match having 537 total, I got most of the match, the finish, the high spots, the intro, one of my favorite matches I filmed. Can we put this one up on the Patreon? We can, and we will. Okay. All right. That's what I want to ask about, because I know you're trying to figure out how much, what, what you can put up and what you can't put up. I, I, I'd love to see them all up, but I understand you are also, behind the scenes, me and John have been talking, you've been also talking to a lot of people that want to use this footage for other things, so you just can't give it away, but we'll give away to no. our Patreons, because we appreciate our Patreons. That's right. And match number seven, Victor Rivera defeated Dory Funk Sr. in 11 minutes, 45 seconds. This is a rematch from the December 18th, 1972 Madison Square Garden show. Yeah, this one was uh, disappointing to me because Funk lost to Rivera, but it made sense because of the, the makeup of the crowd. The fact that the casual fans really didn't know who Funk Sr. was. It was a uh, match, which it was okay. I got a little bit on film, but it really proved to be Dory Funk Sr.'s last match at Madison Square Garden because he died of a massive heart attack on his ranch June the 3rd, 1973, at the age of 54, uh, when he was demonstrating a wrestling hold uh, at his home to a visitor at the Flying Mare Ranch. He suffered his heart attack. And, you know, I never forget learning about that death 
which shocked me. It was about one or two in the morning. There was this uh, public access radio station, WHBI in New York, 103.9, I think it was. And they said, do this weekly wrestling show. And that's where I learned that he had passed away of a massive heart attack. And and for me as a wrestling fan and hearing this on the radio and hearing about a wrestler dying, like that was so foreign to me. And because Funk was such a big name, I was kind of shocked. It almost hit me as hard as, you know, other shocking deaths that you hear about through the cost of your life. So that one has an indelible impression in my mind. And the fact that I got to see him in his last Madison Square Garden show, the fact that I got to see him perform three times at Madison Square Garden in person, to me, uh, means everything today. Oh, wow. And, and you know, listening to that show, uh, looking years ahead, that's how you became a wrestling radio host yourself. I, I really uh, developed a fascination for it, even though it was a scratchy little signal, uh, unlike, you know, probably people when they tried to listen to me at WNYG. But that was kind of like, this is so cool to hear like a wrestling talk on the radio and hear these this news that, you know, you don't know because I wouldn't have found out about Funk Sr.'s passing until you read about it in a wrestling magazine four months after it happened. So to hear it at the same time, it was really it was really to me, it was kind of like, I like this. And 20 years later, you were doing it and you were making your own news with Eric Bischoff. This gave me kind of the, the, the little spark listening to this uh, show from 50 years ago on WHBI. And then when I went to college, really just a couple of years later, 1975, and I pitched the show Pro Wrestling Spotlight at the college radio station during our open auditions. I was a freshman. Paul Manchester was the program director. And Vinnie Kice, who's still a big broadcaster in Virginia, a country music broadcaster, and he was the music director and became one of my best friends. When I pitched them a wrestling show, instead of like wanting an air shift, they were kind of like... And when they put the posting up on the bulletin board where you're reading who gets the air slots, and I saw Saturday, 5 p.m., Pro Wrestling Spotlight, I went nuts. I was like, holy smokes. And I was like, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, it was my start. It was my start of being a broadcaster. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely your start. And I just I never heard before that you used to listen to a radio show on wrestling before this. So that's, that's pretty cool to know about. And it, just that you... We're listening to news, the passing of Dory Funk Sr. The show had made enough of an impression on you to do your own show, and then you made history on your show talking about these kind of things, and people now come to you and say, I heard about this from you. Yeah, it is kind of a serendipitous little way, isn't it? I think it is. I like that. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's go on to the last match of the night, which is kind of amazing to me that this is the last match of the night because this is the one that I'm sure a lot of people who came were looking forward to. And the last match of the night, as we've talked about before at Madison Square Garden, is sometimes a throwaway match because everyone's wanting to leave to get the train home. Match number eight, Mil Mascaris defeated Buddy Wolf in nine minutes, 46 seconds. Yeah, I was very... Uh... I was waiting for this match and I was trying to save film like, you know, I got to shoot Moscris. And I was so pissed that the match went on last because it was about literally quarter to 11 and the train left at 1110. And I'm like, I'm not going to make the train. How do I shoot this? How do I see Moscris? This is what I you know, this was like the highlight, one of the highlights of the night for me. And of course, I have my camera and I'm like, I need to, you know, shoot this. Moscow's ain't here every month. Uh, a lot of anxiety for me. And started off, got his entrance, got his arm drags against Buddy Wolf. And then I'm looking at my watch and I, all right, let me 
film a few seconds of this. And and then I'm like, my friend Frank Favalli, who uh, was with me, is like, we're going to miss the train. We're going to miss the train. I was like, ah. And then, and then I started walking towards the exit, walking up the ramp at Madison Square Garden so we can leave. And I kept turning around to shoot in a couple more frames. And then finally... It's like I start filming because I I, I kind of sensed that the match was going to end, but it was from far away. You know, it wasn't like directly close at ringside because I zoomed in and you could see the entire ring. And then Moscaris throws him into the rope and he does like a couple chops, gets airborne, hits him in the chest, climbs up to the top, does his own version of that flying body press, which was incredible. One, two, three. It's all over. And as soon as the referee hit three, I shut the camera off and ran the hell out of there so I could catch the train. As soon as that referee hit the mat with the three count, we bolted and we caught the train and didn't miss our 1110 train because we would have had to wait another hour and a half till the next one. And I wouldn't be getting home to Babylon until after two in the morning at that point. And you know what? So I'd love to see this match, uh, besides this Mil Mascaris, but having that wider shot of Madison Square Garden from a distance, because normally yeah. you're so close, but at a distance to see the people in there and to see, you know, di- you pick up different things that you don't normally see when you're that close to the ring. Yeah, I don't know why they put it on last. Maybe Mascaris got there late. The thing was, you could see the whole ring, you could see the crowd, and there were people leaving because people had to catch trains, people had to go to work the next day, and they wouldn't normally put a match of this caliber on last, especially with an attraction like Mil Mascaris. Or maybe they want the distance between Morales and Mascaris's match. Who knows what the reason was? But for me, I'm thinking maybe Mascaris showed up at the venue late, or someone did, and they had to put him on last. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Mill was, um, he made his debut in wrestling. We have a little background information like we always do, thanks to our compadre, Richie Garcia, who does an incredible job with research for us. And thank you, Richie, as always. This was his second Madison Square Garden appearance. He did make his debut in wrestling July 20th. 1963, retired in 2019. Uh, his real name, Aaron Rodriguez. So I guess you could call him the original A-Rod, right? That's good. Bit. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And he was well known. He was well known, not willing to sell in a match or do the job in the ring. He would always be no job, no job, no job. He doesn't do jobs. And you can ask guys like Cactus Jack or Chris Jericho about that. And looking back at the Cactus Jack versus Moscow's match, I remember that at the NWA Class Champions 10 because I was kind of excited about it. But Moscow's didn't do any selling for him. And it was up to Cactus to make the match memorable. And he took this bump from the ring apron onto the cement floor and the splat of Cactus's. And people remembered that to this day because... That bump that he took was kind of like an oh shit moment for people. Like, is he dead? Did he get hurt? But he did it on purpose because he wanted something to be remembered about that match where Moscris would not sell to him. And I believe one of the announcers said, Cactus Jack is dead. It could have been Cornette or Jim Ross or something like that. Uh, and Mascaris uh, also never unmasked in the ring. He's a WWE Hall of Famer in 2012, Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Famer in 1996. And for all the the way I revered Mil Mascaris, he was my hero. He was one of my all-time favorites until I did business with him. And uh, I booked him in the main event at a show at the Phoenix State Fair, one of the last shows I ever promoted. could have been the last show I ever promoted in 1996. And uh, not easy to work with. 
And then he shows up in the locker room with the uh, receipt for a first class ticket when I sent him a coach ticket. And he was like, I liked, I want the difference. I was like, you know, I, I bought your plane ticket. We didn't have a deal for a first class ticket. And that's what I remember. And because he's kept calling me about it at my home, John. John, Mil Moskowitz, when are you going to give me the money for the plane ticket? Even a year after I left the wrestling business. A year later, I'm home. My mom lived with me at the time. Phone rings. She picks up and she's like, Johnny, there's a Mil Moscow, somebody, Moscow. I don't know who this is. He's got an accent. So I said, hello, John, Mil Moskowitz. I was like, oh, hey, Mil, how are you? What about the money for this plane ticket? I said, Mil, I never approved it. It was over a year ago. I'm not in the wrestling business anymore. And I hung up on him. And that was the last interaction with Mil Moskers. Classic. And Buddy Wolf has an interesting story, too. I mean, the Muhammad Ali versus Buddy Wolf boxer versus wrestler match can be seen on YouTube. And that was on ABC. I couldn't believe that ABC, Wide World of Sports, ran it. And this was to get over the Ali, uh, to get over Muhammad Ali before the Antonio Inoki boxer versus wrestler match in 1976. And it's really, really cool if you get get to YouTube and see that Buddy Wolf against Ali match, Vern Gagne is the referee. Howard Cosell, Howard Cosell is the announcer. This is Howard Cosell. How can this wrestler, Buddy Wolf, beat the world champion Muhammad Ali? It ain't gonna happen, folks. And, of course, Classy Freddie Blassie was Ali's manager. So that was uh, – I did a good Howard Cosell, do you think? It was yeah. good. It was good, yeah. I a little it. bit, yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? People can shut it off or they could say, what an idiot he is. And sometimes I am. Uh, so anyway, Buddy did a bloody job uh, in that match. Uh, Ali's thrown well, worked punches. And then a young Vince McMahon interviews Ali. And it's all on YouTube. And they really trusted Buddy Wolf to get Ali over in that situation. It's worth watching. And, and speaking of the Mil Maskers Buddy Wolf match, um, do you think you want to put that one on Patreon also? I think I'm going to since we spoke very vividly about it. Okay. Maybe that will be another match we put on Patreon. I think it will be. Yes, Tim. Yes, you convinced me. All right. King Curtis match. We'll, yeah, we'll, people will be happy. Put it that way. If you want to be happy, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Join the family and help us keep the lights on over here. Keep these podcasts coming out for free. We, we really do appreciate it. Our next garden show. Well, before I even get there, what, how would you rate this last garden show, John? What do you think about this? What would you rate this? Oh, wait, wait, thumbs up. You know, just because I have the memories now and the excitement of the crowd morale, it was all thumbs up for me. Territory wrestlers, Ganya, Funks, Moscaris. It was a winner. Good stuff. Good stuff. Next Garden Show, March 26, 1973, headlining by Classy Freddy Blassie, getting his crack at Pedro's title. For the very first time, you also see Andre the Giant at Madison Square Garden. I can't wait for this. Um, I've seen pictures, John, of you and, and Freddie Blassie uh, holding a copy of uh, your newsletter, uh, the King of Men uh, news fan club, because you're the fan club president. You're holding up the newsletter. And uh, also, I've seen some videotape of the Andre match. So this is really something to look forward to for next month it's a historic show for me it's the first time i was allowed backstage at a garden backstage at a wrestling event it's uh the first night i met freddie blassie it's the first night andre the giant worked the garden uh i have eight millimeter film of all of it and i have great stories about all of it and uh, i can't wait like you are waiting i can't wait to get into this next episode it's it's one of the highlights of my entire career in pro wrestling March 26, 1973, 
the next episode of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. And once again, we want to shout out Scott Teal and Crowbar Press for his book, Wrestling at the Garden, The Battle for New York, Work, Shoots, and Double Crosses. Uh, we couldn't do the show without him. No, I want to thank Scott. That book is our Bible. Also, Richie Garcia. What a job Richie's doing. My goodness, Timmy. We, we always talk about this. You have the memories. I have the questions. And Richie writes down the facts. And, yes. you know, he goes through these books, which are really detailed, really good books. But he also pulls out more details on other things, other matches, other other what angles were going on at the time and other places. So we can't thank Richie enough for all the work he does on the show. No, he adds, uh, you know, the, the, the backstories, uh, you know, tidbits. He, he does a lot. We both have knowledge, of course. I go back so many years. But what he's doing to enhance what we talk about on the podcast by feeding us some really good, insightful background information on the wrestlers and some of the other tidbits that he does. My goodness, uh, couldn't do it without him. Absolutely. Anything else, John? Uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> what, what can I say? You know, it's the end of another podcast. I had fun. It looks like you had fun, too. I did. And I look forward to the next one. Fantastic. For John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>